0: Good morning. My name is Erica Roberts, and I have the blessing of being able to speak today on the Wellspring Disciplines. Um, Will you pray with me first? Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that we can come to you and seek you, God, that we can know you more, and that we can see the condition of our hearts and confess sin to you and repent and turn to you in faith. God, please be with us this morning as we think about your gospel and how it impacts us to live lives that glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I am married to Alex Roberts. I'll introduce myself quickly. Um, I became a believer about 15 years ago after God used many people and circumstances in my life to draw me near to him, thankfully. Um, I have three children. Ellie, who's 16, Cameron, who's 15, and my daughter, Abby, who's 9. I've attended Grace for about six years, and I am thankful for the ministry of Wellspring. It's a blessing in my life, and it um, reminds me to seek the Lord um, daily and often. And um, it reminds me of the gospel and the impact that the gospel has in my home because of God's grace. I want to share this morning the disciplines um, of Wellspring and just to remind us this morning of our need for the Lord and the gospel um, because we are prone to forget this truth and we need lots of reminders. And Wellspring has been a wonderful way for me to be reminded of my need for God and His Word. Will you join me in looking at the Wellspring purpose and disciplines this morning on the back of your notebook? What is the purpose of Wellspring? The Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so they may live gospel transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. This happens by God's grace as we intentionally seek to apply these disciplines to our lives and incline our hearts towards the god of the word what are the disciplines we desire to apply to our lives discipline one is the heart or directing our hearts or shepherding our hearts we want to shepherd our hearts towards god through the word and in particular the gospel drinking richly from his word daily and applying his truths to our hearts and minds continually So that by God's grace, we will mature in our relationship with God. Discipline to the home or serving those in our home. We want to tend to or minister to those in our household with our heart for God and the gospel. Pouring ourselves out daily, even hourly in love. Serving God by serving those in our household. We do this to glorify and magnify our good shepherd, the overseer of our souls. And discipline three, ministry or ministry in the church. And this is the discipline I want to focus on this morning. With our heart tuned to God and the gospel and tending attentively to the ministry within our own households, we step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. As women, we have countless opportunities in our hearts and in our homes to surrender our will for God's will in every circumstance we experience. As we are learning to yield to God's will, when we sit before his word, and as we serve others in our home, we can glean wisdom and step into the lives of those in our church sharing what God is teaching us. There are lots of opportunities and ways to enter into ministry in the church. Some happen on Sunday mornings, NGM, greeting, sitting at the coffee station and serving others. Um, Some happen on Wellspring mornings, serving in the nursery, serving in your discussion groups, helping set up or tear down Wellspring, Um, and those are worthy and wonderful ministries and it's a blessing to serve in those and to fellowship with others in the body as we serve i also want to encourage us as women to step into ministry in other ways as we serve in the ministries on sunday mornings and thursdays in different seasons of our life um, ministry can look different and i just want to encourage us as mothers and wives and as students and women in the body to look at uh, ministry through lots of different lenses. Ministry might look like pointing to God's grace as you shepherd one of your children or your niece or your nephew um, at a mom's group gathering or here at church or at the park. As mothers, aunts, sisters, and friends of children, we have many, many opportunities to shepherd little ones' hearts and minds, reminding them of God's grace which trains us to put off ungodliness and teaches us to live self-controlled lives. As we share God's truths with the children in our lives, our sisters in Christ or others may be encouraged. We don't shepherd our kids for others to hear, but as we step into the church as mothers, wives, sisters, friends, we will have the opportunity to live out our household ministry in front of others, to live out our hearts for God in front of others. And we can encourage others with the word of God as we encourage little ones. Ministry might look like shepherding others towards God and the gospel by inviting a young woman into your home to spend some time with you. As women, we have the opportunity to surrender our desires for perfect hospitality and to submit ourselves to God for practical hospitality. We can share our lives with others by letting them be with us as we shepherd our children, answer a phone call from our husband or our parents or our friends, as we fold our laundry, as we change diapers, wipe noses, wipe counters, and love those in our households. We can encourage younger women toward God and the gospel, not through our perfect lives, but through our saved, real, daily household lives, surrendered to God for his glory. Ministry in the church may also look like texting a woman a verse or a hymn, praying for her, or sending her a little note of encouragement from God's word. It may look like making double of what you're fixing that evening for dinner, to care for a woman who just had a baby or lost her father or has sick little ones or is sick herself. Stepping into the church with a heart for God and his gospel may look like sharing in your Wellspring discussion group about what God is teaching you in his word. This can be a a great encouragement to other women. It reminds us of the truths in God's word, and it reminds us of God's faithfulness and steadfast love, and we all need that reminder. Stepping into the church with a heart for God and his gospel may look like caring for women in your small group. One woman in our small group sent out a verse every day in the morning after I had shared that I was struggling to get up earlier to read my Bible. She spurred me on in love and good deeds by ministering to me through a thoughtful text from her reading that morning. Ministry in the church may look like meeting with a friend who's struggling in a certain area, listening as she shares and lovingly reminds and lovingly reminding her of truths from God's word encouraging her and strengthening her as she walks through a trial or a difficult season in her life or maybe just a season that you've been comforted by God in and you might now have something to share with her from his word, from the comfort that you received. We have so many opportunities as women to encourage other women because we have so many opportunities to apply what we have learned from God's word in the relationships we have with those closest to us. As we apply God's word to our lives and we share our lives with other women in the church, we can spur one another on in love and good deeds for his glory. So the question is, why do we meet with the Lord, shepherding our hearts towards God and his gospel? And Why do we minister to those in our household with our heart for God and his gospel? And then why do we step into the church to encourage other women toward God and the gospel? so that the word of God may not be reviled, so that we might testify of the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. He saved us not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's from Titus 2, four. We step into the church to shepherd others towards God and the gospel, adorning the hope of the gospel to strengthen the church in its gospel purpose. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the hope of the gospel that you have given all those who are called according to your purpose. Lord, please be with us as we meet with you, Lord, as we minister in our households, and as we step into the church to encourage one another in the gospel and your purpose for us in your church and in the world, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
1: This morning we're going to look at the life of a woman who was known for her wisdom and discretion. She was a woman who was ready to speak truth when truth needed to be heard. So the account of Abigail's life is in 1 Samuel 25. And as part of your homework, you read that, I hope, in preparation for this morning. Now, this passage that we're going to look at um, is a narrative. And uh, there are some things that we need to remember when we are looking or reading a narrative in Scripture. And you have these on your outline. And the first one is that the main character in the hero is always God. I think it could be tempting to focus on the players that God has kind of set on his stage. Um, for instance, like Abigail or even David. And God obviously does use Abigail. There's a lot that we can learn from her life. That's why we're going to look at her this morning. But we can't miss the one who is working through his players. God is the one who is faithful to keep his promises and... He is the one who faithfully works in the lives of those whom he chooses for his purposes. And we're going to see that this morning in Abigail and David and actually in her husband as well. And then the second thing, there are many details that are given in a narrative, but we need to remember that there are also many that are not given. And so we need to be very careful that we don't read more into what's going on than what is written. We're given just what we need to know. At the same time, because we are reading an historical narrative, we can't forget that we are reading about real people and real places at a real time in history. And so understanding the historical context helps us to rightly understand the information that is given to us in the passage. So for instance, in this narrative that we read in 1 Samuel 25, we know that it's taken place during that transition time of the judges. Okay, they do have a king, Saul, but overall people are still doing what is right in their own eyes. And then the last thing is that we need to remember is not everything that is written in a narrative is to be taken as something that we need to apply. Okay? It may simply be telling us what is happening. So it may not tell us, for example, if, if someone is making a good choice or why it was made. It simply informs us of what the characters did. So let's keep those in mind as we look at our passage this morning. But before we do, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you often during the morning before we um, really look at your word, because we know that we need you. We need for you to be our teacher this morning. Father, we want to hold your word high. We want to humble ourselves beneath your word. And, Father, um, we want our main goal to um, not only be to look at the things that uh, we need to learn and apply, and obviously we want that, Lord, but most of all, we want want to know you. We pray that as we look at uh, this passage this morning, that we will come away knowing you better so that we can trust you in the circumstances that you place in our lives. And so, Father, that's our prayer this morning. And uh, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness in giving us your word to reveal yourself to us. And, uh, Father, we just want to tell you this morning we love you, and we are so grateful for all of your provisions to us. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. All right, so um, let's. we're going to read chapter 25 this morning. Um, it's a long chapter, but we're going to read from verse 1 all the way to the beginning of verse 39. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25. And I just want you to notice that as we read, you're going to see the word Lord used there in three different ways. And the first time I read it, I had to kind of slow down and, and look. So we're going to see it with a lowercase l when it refers to Nabal and also when it refers to David. And then, in, in both of those references, it just, it means master, okay? And then we're going to see it used in all uppercase letters, and obviously that refers to God. So let me first give you a little bit of context um, to, set, to set up chapter 25. In First Samuel 15, we see that Saul is king, but as we know, he was disobedient to the Lord. And Samuel told Saul in verse 23 that because he had rejected the word of the Lord, that the Lord had rejected him from being king over Israel. And it says that Samuel grieved over the sin of Saul because of his love for God and for God's people. And then in chapter 16, God tells Samuel that he has selected a new king and he promises to show Samuel who is to replace Paul. Saul, sorry. And so obviously we know that God chose David out of all of the sons of Jesse and he's anointed as king. And it was the prophet Samuel who anointed him as the next king over Israel. So Saul is fueled by jealousy and he sets out to kill his successor, David. We know from chapter 19 that as David is on the run trying to escape the wrath of Saul that he went to Ramah, and it tells us that Samuel was with him there. We also know from chapter 12 that Samuel was a constant intercessor for Israel. It tells us that he prayed daily for them. So now let's go ahead and pick up in chapter 25, verse 1. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So the fact that all Israel assembled together and mourned Samuel's death tells us that Samuel's role as a prophet and a godly leader was recognized by the whole nation of Israel as a blessing for them. So I don't want us to miss the significance of this great prophet's death to Israel and to David personally. David's advisor and confidant has died, and David, along with the nation, is plunged into deep grief. It seems that this is a very dark period in David's life. So let's continue reading. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about that while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, and then it gives us some information about him, that this man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the the woman was intelligent and beautiful in, in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. And then it continues to tell us what happened while Nabal's sheep were being sheared. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers now. Now your shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man, that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missing of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning... I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young, the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgressions of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because the Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up and pursue you and seek your life, Then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, then this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you unless you had come quickly to meet me. Surely there would not have been left to Nabal until morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought to him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail said to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house. I'm sorry, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And uh, Nabal's heart—sorry, i just lost my place. Oh, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. Well, that's a lot. And there's a lot in here and there's a lot. There's a lot for us to learn from Abigail's wife as well as those in her life. So we're going to see this morning how God used Abigail to protect her household as well as David, the chosen king of Israel. So in order for us to understand the role that Abigail played and how God used her, we need to understand two other people in her life. The first one is her husband Nabal. So the first thing this passage tells us about Nabal is that he had a business and that he was very wealthy. Most commentators believe that having been a descendant of Caleb or a Calebite, as it says in verse 3, meant that he would have inherited the land around Hebron, which may have meant that that was the source of his wealth, not necessarily hard work on his part. Another thing that's important for us to know is that names in the Old Testament often had a greater significance than they do today. The significance of a name often played a bearing on what God was doing in that life, and it often revealed the character of that person. So let's look at the name Nabal. His name means fool or senseless. And in verse 25, Abigail said of her husband Nabal, For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. And we know from having just read the passage that Nabal indeed was a foolish man. Now I want you to listen to what Scripture says about a foolish person, keeping in mind what we just read about Nabal. Psalm 14.1 says the fool. And by the way, the Hebrew word for fool is Nabal. So the, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That kind of person is one who is full of pride. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 28.6, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. And I think this one is so interesting in light of uh, what we just read. Isaiah 32, 6. For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness, to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied, and to withhold drink from the thirsty." So the text also tells us that Nabal was harsh, unkind, deceptive, selfish, worthless, a drunkard, arrogant, and unapproachable. And it says that he was evil in his dealings. Not just occasionally, but the idea is this was his practice. It was his habit. And what was the source of his evil dealings? was his heart those evil dealings were an overflow of his heart so that gives us a glimpse into the kind of man who nabal was on a heart level now this foolish prideful man had a wife whose name was abigail let's look at how the passage describes her verse 3 tells us that she was intelligent and she was beautiful in appearance she was intelligent Now, the word here means more than what we would tend to think of when we think of the word intelligent. The word um, here means goodness or having desirable and positive qualities. It means to be prudent or sensible. Other versions of the Bible translate this word for intelligent in verse 3 as wise or having good understanding or discerning. So, Think about how this passage describes this man, this husband, and this wife. Here we have a beautiful, wise woman, and she is married to a foolish man. Is it possible for a woman to be married to this kind of man and still glorify God? I think that's going to become evident as we continue. Now, you might be thinking, how did these two end up married? Well, again, there are some things that we need to understand about the culture in which Abigail lived. She lived in a time where marriages were arranged. And oftentimes the best women, for example, the most beautiful, were given to wealthy men. And not only was Abigail in what had to have been a very difficult marriage, but she also had no children. Again, in that culture, there was a lot of shame tied to being childless. What a challenging life for Abigail. Now, remembering that significance of names that they often held in the Old Testament, again, revealing the character of a person, I want to point out the meaning of Abigail's name, where we saw that Nabal's name meant fool. Abigail's name meant cause of joy. And again, I think we're going to see how that really indeed does reveal her character. Now, the other person that we need to look at is David. This glimpse into David's life at this point in time helps us see so clearly that we must never neglect to shepherd our hearts, to watch over them with all diligence, understanding how weak we can become when we are not determined Focused on putting our trust in God in every circumstance we face. We see from so many other places in Scripture that David knew how to guard his heart. We see that in chapter 23, when Saul was set on killing David, the men of Kali were going to deliver him to Saul. What did David do? He escaped. He didn't retaliate. He just ran from the evil plotted against him. In chapter 24, Saul continued to hunt down David for the purpose of putting him to death. And what did David do in that long-lived trial? He trusted God and guarded his heart from doing evil. We also see this when David and his men were hiding in the cave and then um, Saul entered that cave. Do you remember that situation, what Saul was doing? David could have taken that as the perfect opportunity to end his life of running and the constant threat to his own life. And to make it even more challenging, we see in verse 4 that even David's own men encouraged him to take matters into his own hand. But but though the Lord had anointed David as king, he refused to harm Saul because he knew that it wasn't his place to raise a hand against Saul. He was trusting God to avenge him. So that's how we find David guarding his heart right before this chapter with Abigail. Now let's look at what happened right after this encounter with Abigail. Let's jump ahead to chapter 26. In verse 1, we see that the Ziphites betrayed David. And what does David do? He just goes. He leaves. Again, no retaliation. And then we find David again with another opportunity to end Saul's life and with it the threat to his own. David came to the place where Saul was camped and found David and his men asleep. And do you remember what was there with Saul? There was a spear right on the ground at Saul's head, being persuaded by Abishai, who was with David, telling him, God has delivered him, your enemy, right into your hand. Therefore, please let me strike him with the spear. Remember what David's reply was? He shows that he feared the Lord and that he trusted him when he said, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear and the jug of water and let us go. David just walked away. So again, we see evidence that David knew how to guard his heart well. And he chose to trust God and his plan rather than to take matters into his own hand. David chose to stay running and hiding rather than to sin against God. David had great restraint and self-control, willing to trust God and wait for God's timing. David was a man who would later in history would be known as a man after God's own heart. So now inserted between all of these accounts, we find David and his men in the wilderness of Paran protecting Nabal's sheep and shepherds from tribes that might come in and steal the livestock and bring harm to the shepherds who were watching over those sheep. David's character is revealed as we see his willingness to work, to serve others, even though he was a king, in order to provide for his needs as well as the need of the 600 men who were with him. It was because of David that Nabal's flocks prospered. And so according to the custom of that day at the time that the sheep were to be sheared, it was common for the owner of those sheep of the flocks to set aside a portion of the profit that he made and to give it to those who had protected the flocks and the and shepherds while they were out in the fields. So David and his men had been faithful in watching out for Nabal's shepherds and flocks. And so when they heard that Nabal was about to, um, she- to shear his sheep, David reasoned that he would be paid for his work. So it was not at all unreasonable then for David to ask Nabal to respond kindly to him. Mm -hmm. So in verse 5, we see that David sent 10 of his men to remind Nabal of how he had profited because of David and his men, and to ask Nabal for whatever payment he thought was appropriate. And then they were to bring it back to David. So let's look again at verses 5 through 9. So David sent 10 young men and told them to go up to Carmel, visit David and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. And now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them, nor, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. David's request to Nabal through his servants showed really the epitome of courtesy. They asked in a very respectful manner. They didn't even demand a certain amount, but they left it up to Nabal's discretion. And even referring to David as your son was a sign of respect. It showed that they, este- that they esteemed Nabal because of his position of authority. It's kind of like an employee to a boss. So it seems here that David truly was trusting God to provide for him through and for his men through Nabal. So now, in that culture, Nabal had a choice of how generous of a gift he wanted to give. But being unwilling to give anything, even bread and water, which, although not generous, would have even, that even would have been acceptable. But in spite of David's job well done and humble approach, Nabal not only refused any payment for David and his men, but his response was rude and insulting he chose to return evil for good. Look again at Nabal's response to David in verse 10. Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? in his response, Nabal accused David of being an insignificant man, a runaway slave rather than God's chosen king of Israel. Nabal offended David by treating him as a rebel whose request you don't even need to take into consideration. Nabal's attitude was lofty and self-centered. He withheld what was rightly due David. Remember what it said in verse 2 about Nabal? He was a very rich man. He had the means to give David and his men a very generous gift for his services. And yet he was unwilling to even recognize the care from which he benefited. Unwilling to provide for them even the very basics of bread and water. And did you see how he justifies his own greed by pleading ignorance? This disrespectful um, act of ignorance of David was surely a pretense. The knowledge of this young king elect was widespread. Nabal, I think, pretended not to know to excuse his unwillingness to do what was right. And there are at least two things—two um, things—in the passage that help us to see that. In verse ten, Nabal said, "Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse?" See, Nabal at least knew who David's father was. And we'll see later that Abigail clearly understood God's call on David's life. So it's hard to imagine how she could know that and that her powerful, wealthy businessman husband did not. So let's look at the verse that describes David's response. In verse 22, we see that David is set on avenging this wrong. In verse 13, he said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. And David also girded on his sword and about 400 men went up behind David. Now, we know what 400 men with swords intend to do. David was acting impulsively and actually had resolved to kill and take his own vengeance. Don't you just have to ask, what happened? Does that sound like the David who spared Saul's life and prevented others from killing Saul even when they had the perfect opportunity to do so? Does that sound like David who during his fight with the insulting giant Goliath thought only of the honor of the living God? It was sinful pride for Nabal to withhold any kind of recognition for, his, for the service that he had received. But David, the remarkable man of God who modeled patience for years under the unjust treatment of Saul, seemed to have lost sight of God's promises and the need to guard his heart. And we know that doesn't just happen to David, does it? It certainly appears that David had anger burning in his heart because it wasn't enough for him just to get even by taking the life of Nabal. But his plan was to take the life of all in Nabal's household. Remember, he had 400 men with him. He wanted Nabal's entire household to be utterly destroyed. This would have included the skilled workers and shepherds, as well as those um, his extended family members. They weren't all guilty of pridefully withholding from David, but David doesn't seem to consider to t- doesn't seem to take that into consideration. So, what does this tell us about David? About his heart? About our own hearts? Outside pressures often reveal areas of weakness, don't they? showing us where our trust in God is weak. And when our hearts are unguarded, we are vulnerable to all kinds of sin. Isn't that true for all of us? We may have been in a good place yesterday, and we may find ourselves in a good place tomorrow, but there could be something that blindsides us in the very next circumstance that we face that could cause us to fall into, to give into temptation to sin. And so we must prepare for it now with all that we've learned about the heart in Wellspring. Doesn't that just remind us of how much we need to be in God's word for the purpose of knowing him so that we are ready to trust him when circumstances catch us off guard? Why? Why? because we live in a mixed condition. We are capable of trusting God one minute and turning from his ways the next. It's sobering to read this passage and to see what our hearts are all capable of. And yet, we see God's grace in turning David back from his sin by using two people, an unnamed servant of Nabal's and Abigail, Let's first look at the young man of of Nabal's household. I want us to see the wisdom that he displayed by his choice of going to Abigail with the information that he had received. Let's look at what the young man told Abigail, starting in verse 14. The men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as 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 long as we went about with them while they were in the fields. They were a wall to us both day, both night and day, all the time we were with them, tending sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master. In other words, against your husband and against all the household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. See, this young man knew his master Nabal. He knew that he was a foolish man. He also knew that his own life was at stake. And so he demonstrated wisdom in his decision of going to Abigail to tell her of David's care over the flocks and Nabal's withholding from David and David's evil plan of revenge. If he'd not gone to Abigail, she would not have known about the situation and therefore she wouldn't have had the opportunity to intervene. So now Abigail had choices to make. She could have done nothing. Now, I have no idea if this thought went through Abigail's mind, but she knew her husband. She told David that he was worthless. He was a fool. If she had done nothing, she would have been rid of an awful husband and a difficult marriage. But Abigail did just the opposite. Instead of sitting back and letting the harm he deserved come to him, she took action to protect her foolish husband and her household. Proverbs 31.12 tells us that an excellent wife brings her husband good and not harm all the days of her life. It doesn't say that she does this if he deserves it. Abigail also could have ignored the danger that David, the future king of Israel, was in. She could have chosen not to protect him from sinning, but she didn't ignore it. A discerning woman is concerned to view things from God's perspective and to respond in a way that honors God. Abigail protected her husband and David not because they warranted it, but because it was what honored God. And she lost no time in doing it. She didn't give herself time to fall into the temptation to sinfully respond or to be lazy in responding. But we see that she acted quickly in doing what was right. Because remember, there was someone else who was acting quickly, right? David and his 400 armed men, ready to slaughter an entire household, Abigail shows wisdom in acting quickly. Look at verses 18 and 19. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain, and a hundred clusters of raisin, and two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Now remember, this is the time of of shearing the sheep, so there's a a lot going on. It wasn't like she just, you know, every day had this prepared, okay? Just so you don't think that, you know, that's a part of it. There's a reason why all of this was prepared here. So she gave him to the young men, and she said, Go on before me, behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So she shows wisdom even in sending the men ahead of her to soften David's heart and to cool his anger so that her words of truth would be received. Now, you might be wondering, why did Abigail not tell her husband? Well, we don't know because scripture doesn't tell us. We need to remember that this is a narrative portion of scripture It's just telling us what happened. However, it seems reasonable to conclude that Abigail didn't keep this from her husband for her own benefit, but rather out of her protection for him and for her household. I believe she acted in wisdom, knowing that it would bring glory to God and good to many. Abigail was concerned about her household and she was concerned about protecting God's honor and removing a stumbling block from David. So let's think about what, this, what the chapter says. It describes Abigail as intelligent and discerning. The servant appealed to Abigail when Nabal responded so badly and was unapproachable, applying he knew her to be approachable and wise and concerned for the welfare of her household. He ends his appeal with the words, now therefore consider what you should do. Abigail acted in a moment of great danger and peril to her household, as well as to David and to his role to which God had ordained him. David blessed God, Abigail's discernment, and Abigail herself, for the, her intervention. She told Mabel what she had done when he was sober the next day. I believe that shows her intent was not to deceive him. Abigail spoke with great humility. She spoke truth. She acted with great courage in the face of two men who were in sin, both her husband and David. It appears that sitting back and doing nothing Just trusting the Lord to intervene would have been wrong. It would have been failing to do good and to prevent evil when it was within her power to act. It appears that from Abigail's perspective that she was bound to do what she could to avert the tragedy and that she reasoned David was more likely to be influenced by a biblical appeal since no one can speak to Nabal. And then in verses 21 and 22, they sh- it shows Abigail going then to meet David. and We find David and his men coming toward Nabal's household. And again, listen to what's in David's heart. Surely in vain I have guarded all the things that this man... I mean, can't you just hear the frustration or more than frustration in his voice that this man has in the wilderness so that they've missed nothing of all that belonged to him and he has returned evil for good may god do to the enemies of david and more also if by morning i leave as much as one male of any who belonged to him it seems that david actually regretted the good care that he had given to nabal and to name, in caring for nabal's shepherds and sheep from his perspective He saw it as a waste of time, as having no purpose, and he was determined to get revenge. Where was David's focus now? It was set on the one who offended him. And so Abigail meets up with David, and let's look at her response starting in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, And I, I think it's interesting that this is one of the longest discourses in the Bible given by a woman. It's full of wisdom, and I think it's, good, and it's filled with good theology. And it's a great example of how to appeal to someone especially someone in authority. She said, "'On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent.'" Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for you an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you all your days. Abigail comes as a godly woman ready to speak truth to David, and she's the only one recorded who does speak truth to him. So let's look at this again and observe her godly qualities and her powerful message. What do we see? First of all, we see great humility in verse 23. Abigail's dismounting in the presence of David shows that she saw him as as her superior. It was the highest demonstration of respect that could be shown in that culture. Bowing herself to the ground would have shown David her attitude, that she was coming to make full amends for the disrespect shown by her husband. It also communicated that she recognized and respected David as the future king. Number two, we also see a gentle, gracious appeal to David to redirect his focus away from the defender in verse 25. Just please do not pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. And then number three, she wanted David to see God's protection of him. We see that in verse twenty-six when she told, when she tells David, the Lord has restrained you from the shedding of blood by avenging yourself by your own hand. Number four, she acknowledged the offense. And seeks to right the wrong committed against him by bringing a generous gift to David's men. Can't help but notice the contrast between what Nabal was willing to give and what Abigail actually brought. And in verse 28, Abigail said, Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Now, it's not clear to me anyway why Abigail felt it necessary to seek forgiveness from David. But in her doing so, we see such great humility. It seems Abigail wanted to take every obstacle out of the way in order to put David's focus back on the Lord. Number six, Abigail declared with certainty the things that were true about the Lord in his protection of David. In verses 29 through 31, she continues to point him to God. She encourages David to look forward and to think about why he, w- why he will be glad if he turns away from sin. And then in verse 32, we see how truth diffused David's anger. First, he blessed the Lord, and then he recognized that it was God who sent Abigail. She was God's chosen messenger to speak God's truth when truth needed to be spoken. Abigail was ready to speak truth when it needed to be heard. This account ends in verses 36 through 39 with Abigail going home. When Nabal was sober, she told him all that had happened. And it says that his heart died within him. And 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Look again at verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. God had protected David and and proved to him once again that he could be trusted to deal with with a foolish man, that David didn't need to take vengeance when evil was returned for good. Now, I want to just end with some thoughts for you to consider. I'd like for you to just listen. These are written in your uh, homework, so you'll be able to give them more consideration later. I just want you to think about these. Is it possible that God used marriage to a foolish, harsh man to teach Abigail how to make a humble, gentle appeal that would prepare her to someday appeal to David to protect him, the future king of Israel, from sin that would have great consequences. Are you willing to trust God with the circumstances that he places in your life, knowing that he causes all things to work together for your good and his glory. What will you do now so that you will be able to guard your heart and strengthen your trust in God when it is weak? And then I think it's important for us to ask this question. Do you know where you are prone to get blindsided and thrown off guard? And when you recognize that, how can you prepare for that now? To be thinking as a discerning woman so that your thoughts are aligned with God's thoughts so that you will respond when that comes, when that circumstance comes that might throw you off guard so that you will respond in a way that honors God. A discerning woman is concerned to view things from God's perspective and to respond in a way that honors God. Ladies, my prayer is that we will grow in discernment as we seek to honor God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we do, we so desire to be women who are concerned for your glory, that that would be the greatest desire of our heart in every circumstance that we face. We know that we are weak, and so, Father, we ask for your help. Please help us to be diligent, to guard our hearts well, and to plan for those times that we might be caught off guard that we would remember at those times who you are, that we would recall the things that are true about you and how you desire for us to live. Father, we plead with you to make us women of discernment so that our actions and our lives bring you the glory that is due your name. Father, we pray, we plead with you to help us And we pray these things now in the name of your Son. Amen.